so as those of y'all that have been here for the last three weeks or so um, may recall, we've been spending this Epiphany Tide looking at the different ways our Lord Jesus is manifested or revealed to his people in those early stories from the gospel. Because remember, that's what epiphany means. It means manifestation. And all of these, at least these first several weeks of the season, focus on different ways he's manifested or revealed in those early gospel stories. So on the Feast of the Epiphany, we looked at how Jesus was manifested to the Gentiles in the visitation of the Magi. Two weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus is manifested, was manifested to the faithful teachers, doctors, scholars in the temple when he was a boy. Last week, we looked at Jesus manifested as the Son of God and God the Son um, to the repentant folks when he was baptized. Now, today, we're going to look at his manifestation, the manifestation of his glory at the first of his miracles. But before we get into our gospel passage um, in more detail, let's set the scene a bit as presented in John's gospel, in the fourth gospel. So our passage begins with the phrase, on the third day. Now, as I mentioned earlier, last week we remembered the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan. Well, in the context of John's gospel, the baptism occurs in the previous chapter three days before what's going on today. And then it's followed by two days of Jesus calling the first disciples. 19th century priest, historian, and Jewish convert Alfred Edersheim says that the apostle Nathaniel, who had been called the previous day to follow Jesus, was probably from Cana of Galilee. And at that call, Jesus had revealed to Nathaniel, had manifested um, that he had seen him, that Jesus had seen Nathanael in some sort of vision under the fig tree when Nathanael was either praying or studying. And then Nathanael immediately realizes that Jesus is the Messiah and declares him the King of Israel and the Son of God. And Jesus' answer to Nathanael, again, this is back in chapter 1 of, of John's Gospel, was, that, was telling him that he's going to see greater things. And as we know from the end of today's gospel passage, it didn't take long for that prediction to come true. But in the meantime, we have this wedding in Nathaniel's village. So there's a sense where Jesus attending a wedding um, could seem a little bit odd at this point. After all, in his baptism, he had been commissioned by his father to begin the ministry so if he's got to get about his father's business of preaching the gospel and bringing in the kingdom of God, does he really have time for a party? Well, St. Augustine says, on the contrary, the wedding at Canaan is a microcosm of our Lord's mission. So this is what St. Augustine writes. He says, the Lord was invited and came to a wedding. Is it any wonder that he who came to that house for a wedding came into this world for a wedding? He has a bride here whom he has redeemed by his blood and to whom he has given the Holy Spirit as a pledge. So in other words, in the first of his signs, we see a manifestation of Jesus' glory that sets the stage for his entire ministry. So with that in mind, let's open our Bibles to today's gospel passage, John 2, beginning at the first verse, John 2, 1. And we're going to focus on two aspects of this story 
the manifestation of Jesus' glory at the first sign, and then the response from the Blessed Virgin Mary. So please turn your Bibles again to John chapter 2, beginning at the first verse. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. That's about 20 or 30 gallons in American. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they fill them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew it, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So unlike the synoptic Gospels, uh, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, St. John portrays very few miracles in his Gospel. So in fact, he really only gives us seven in the whole Gospel, and six of which he, he specifically calls signs. And so all of this happens, all seven of these happen in the first half of John's Gospel, which has led some scholars to call John 2 through 12 the book of the signs, and then the rest of the Gospel they call the book of glory. So here are the seven signs in John's Gospel. We have number one, the turning of water into wine in today's passage. Then we have the healing of the official son in Capernaum in John 4. So that's, that's uh, and that'll be alluded to, I believe, in next week's Gospel. We have the healing of the paralytic at Bethsaida in John chapter 5, the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, the walking on water also in John 6, the healing of the man born blind in John 9, and then the raising of Lazarus in John 11. So for for St. John, these seven miracles, these seven signs are special miracles that reveal Jesus' identity as the divine logos, the word made flesh, as he talks about in his uh, first chapter. So as we read, today's miracle is the first of Jesus' sign. As St. Augustine said, this sign sets the tone for Jesus' ministry and mission as portrayed in the gospel. So first of all, this sign reveals Jesus' divinity with a powerful act of creation. As as the concluding verse of our passage says, with this powerful act, Jesus manifested his glory. And, And this really is a very extravagant act of creation. Six stone jars with 20 or 30 gallons, that turns into about 600 to 900 bottles of wine. Even if the entire village and their neighboring relatives were all at the wedding, there is no way they were going to be able to drink all that in in that single party. Probably not within a full year. Much less after they'd already been drinking all day, right? (laughs) 
The German reformer Martin Bucer, and he uh, incidentally helped Archbishop Cranmer with the development of the first book of Common Prayer. Uh, Bucer points out that some Christians, uh, both in his day and I would say today, would probably have rebuked or maybe even excommunicated Jesus over such extravagance because they would be afraid it would lead to drunkenness. And we really don't ever see in the scriptures anybody else performing such a grand miracle. The sign and the glory then also, so this is number two, they reveal the nature of Jesus' ministry. It's a ministry of God's grace. Whenever you read St. John's Gospel, remember that he's fond of incorporating multiple meanings into the text. The surface story is really, the, is, is rarely rather, the entire point. The main events and the facts of Jesus' life had already been circulating in the other three Gospels. John is one of the last books of the New Testament written. And so John's giving us a little bit different perspective. St. Clement of Alexandria says, last of all, John, perceiving that the external facts had been made plain, and he's talking about in those other canonical gospel, John composed a spiritual gospel. So there's always a deeper spiritual truth in the stories of John's gospels, like an onion or, or a parfait. In this case, it's significant that the first sign is at a wedding. Jesus' mission was to win and woo his bride, the church. He was laying the preparation for the great marriage supper of the Lamb, as we read about in Revelation and some of his parables. Also note the significance of wine. Wine is not a necessity in life. It's a luxury. And even then, when, when wine was drunk, kind of every day because the water wasn't as, as usual. It was often mixed with water because everybody knew wine is a luxury. You have to stretch it out. Well, Jesus came to give us life and life to the fullest. He came to give us abundant life. And the miracle of the wine at Cana is a picture of that abundant life. Wine is a symbol of fellowship, a symbol of joy. In this miracle, we see God's grace poured out and manifested in this extravagant joy. The jars are filled to the brim, our text says. So the Christian life is also one of abundant joy as well as a, as a life of holiness. Holiness and joy are not antithetical concepts. They're not opposed to each other. Scripture says in Nehemiah chapter 8, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And, and this joy does include appropriate times of celebrating and feasting, such as at a wedding. And our joy as Christians also extends to times of difficulty and suffering. If you've been following along in our uh, daily office lectionary that's, that's in our prayer book, um, this past Friday for morning prayer, we just began St. Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Philippians is one of those letters that Paul writes from prison. He's in really the lowest of situations, yet it's the one that gives us all the major themes of joy in the, in the epistles. And Paul roots that in thanksgiving. So notice also that the text speaks here of the water jars being used for the Jewish rites of purification. That's verse 6. Now, it's important to note that these are not the Old Testament ceremonial law 
uh, rights. These are not things that were commanded by God in the Old Testament. Because the washings at the Old Testament are either related to the, sem- the temple service or to ritual impurity. All the washings in the Old Testament are either temple issues or ritual impurity issues. And neither of those would be present in the context of a private home. Certainly not a private home at a wedding. What we have here then is kinds of purifications and washings that are extra-biblical traditions of the elders. They're the things that the Pharisees had added to the law. The kind of things that the Pharisees criticized the disciples for not doing when they complained that Jesus and his followers were eating without washing their hands. With that in mind, see here the contrast between the joy of the gospel and the burden of legalism. The Pharisees, like all legalists, are piling extra laws on top of God's law in order to protect God's law from being broken, as if the scripture can't stand up for itself. The covenant relationship with God that he had with his people had been perverted into a checklist of do's and don'ts. Now, we often find the Pharisees bewildering in that tendency, but remember that legalism is always a tendency in our heart. It's a default position for human beings. We want to earn our status with God. We want to make a relationship into checklists of do's and don'ts. And this is there is always a temptation to become a Pharisee, especially for those of us who are very traditional in our faith. And often that does come from a desire to be holy, but we miss the point, right? Because the joy of the gospel, it gives us freedom within the holiness that we've been called to, freedom within our obedience to God. It gives us the joy of rooting ourselves in what Jesus has done for us rather than our poor attempts at being good. It keeps our focus on God rather than on our performance. And the result of that joy and freedom, paradoxically, is that we do end up being more obedient and more holy in spite of ourselves. We get better when we're focused on God and not on us. Now, finally, let's take a look at our Lord's mother and on the disciples. It's important to remember that the Blessed Virgin Mary is often a type of the church in John's writings. So we have, for example, Revelation chapter 12, where she's shown as the mother of all of Jesus' brethren who's persecuted by the devil. This is a clear symbol of the church. And in St. John's depiction of the crucifixion, she's entrusted to the care of John, which can be read as a symbol of the church being entrusted to the apostles. The father is often pointed to that symbolism. And even in her very role as the one who bore Jesus into the world, we see that the Blessed Virgin Mary is a type of the church because the church brings the Lord to all the nations. That's our job, is to bring him to the world. Now, in today's passage, we also see her as an example and as a stand-in for all the faithful. So notice that she goes to Jesus on behalf of the groom when there's a problem. She's interceding with the Lord on behalf of the wedding party. We are also called to intercede on behalf of our brothers and sisters in prayer. Certainly, you should be praying for yourself, but don't forget to pray for others. That's why there's so much we in the prayer book. We pray as a body and we pray for the body of Christ. 
Also notice her words to the servants. Do whatever he tells you, verse 5. This is the cry of the church to all the faithful. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Follow Jesus. Obey his word. And most especially, believe in him. And that's what we see with the disciples at the end of the story. The end result of this first sign is that last sentence. Last sentence, And the disciples believed in him. The same is true for us. When we see Jesus manifested in his word, we see him manifested through the sacraments, we see him manifested through the ministry of his people, that should strengthen our belief. And it should be a witness for the manifestation of his glory and his grace. And we say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.